0: Well, good morning, everyone. Um, handouts for our uh, session today are in the back if you don't have one and would like one. Uh, it, it, this morning we have everyone together for, for our two sessions. We're, we're going to focus on 1 John today. For those of you who are in the marriage class, uh, we're going to take a, a little sidestep here. And we're going to... Uh, learn about what we've been learning in 1 John. Now, uh, for those of you who have been in that marriage study, um, the timing is good because what we're talking about today is love. So, perfect love. So, it might be a slightly different perspective on what you've been hearing uh, on, on marriage, but I think this is going to be a really helpful perspective for you as we look at what Scripture tells us through uh, the Apostle John. So, for those of you whom I've not met, my name is Dave Kronbacher, and uh, I've been privileged to help in teaching through this 1 John over the last several weeks. So, instead of jumping right into the middle here of uh, chapter 4, I'm going to give you all just a little bit of background on the book of First John to give you a little bit of context. So the Apostle John is the author of this letter and he likely wrote this while in Ephesus uh, to the churches that are in that area, in Asia Minor. And uh, he had exercised apostolic leadership over those churches. And, And these churches were under attack. They were under attack from false teachers who were influencing them uh, with these aberrant claims, uh, such as denying Christ's true humanity, and even saying that a mystical knowledge of truth uh, is only available to elites, Uh, and it was even higher than Scripture itself. Uh, These were early forms of Gnosticism, as, as we've heard before. So, John writes this and his other two epistles, 2nd and 3rd John, to deepen and confirm the faith of those that he's writing to and their assurance of salvation. And we find four main purposes of 1 John. And I put them at the top of the handout here for you to reference in the top right. And what's really wonderful here is that John is very clear about his purposes. Isn't it great he says, I write these things to you. I have written this to you. We write these things to you. So those are really good clues to understand what is the purpose of this letter. So the first purpose is joy. Chapter 1, verse 4. These things we write so that our joy may be made complete. Two, holiness. Chapter 2, verse 1 He says, I am writing these things to you so that you may not sin. Third, protection from false teachers or theological purity. Chapter 2, verse 26. These things I have written to you concerning those who are trying to deceive you. And then lastly, in verse 13 of chapter 5, assurance of eternal life. Right? A great verse. These things I have written to you who believe in the name of the Son of God so that you may know that you have eternal life. That word know, K-N-O-W, it appears 36 times in this letter. 36 times. So he's very much, John is very much about communicating assurance to his readers. And his approach here is by way of tests. Uh, tests of genuine fellowship, and those tests come in two forms, doctrinal tests and moral tests, and the doctrinal tests meaning what we believe, our theology, and then moral tests are the meaning, uh, meaning our attitudes and our actions, And, and John takes us through multiple cycles, spirals of tests throughout this letter. And so far, he's given us doctrinal tests on the view of Christ. He starts right there, chapter 1, verse 1. Our view of sin, antichrists, our view of false teaching. And he also gives moral tests on our view of obedience, righteousness, and, of course, love. So the last time we met, when we were... Uh, in our first John study, we had covered the first six verses of chapter four, and that's where John focused on testing the spirits. That was another doctrinal test that he was giving his readers. But today, we move to another moral test that follows that in chapter four, verses seven through 21. It's the test of love. So love has been described many by many people in many different ways, hasn't it? Have you ever asked a young child to describe what love means? Some researchers asked a group of uh, four to eight-year-olds this question. What is love? Got some interesting results. Love is when you go out to eat and give somebody most of your French fries without making them give you any of theirs. Pretty practical. Uh, Love is when your puppy licks your face even after you left him all day long. Somebody said that a goal that someone has is to be the kind of person that, that, that my dog thinks I am. Another, love is when you tell a guy you like his shirt, then he wears it every day. Love is when mommy gives daddy the best piece of chicken. Okay, that's pretty practical, don't you think? And the, the last one, you really shouldn't say I love you unless you mean it. But if you mean it, you should say it a lot. People forget. I'm like, oh, that's a pretty good one, isn't it? It's pretty insightful. Well, it's fun to get a child's perspective on love, but we need to get God's perspective on love. Right? In this passage that we go through this morning, it gives us a full treatment of love. And he, John takes us to the very origin of the source of love, and that's God himself. So as I read our passage, I want you to take note of the different types of love that John mentions here. Okay? So we're in 1 John chapter 4. We're going to read verses 7 through 21. Beloved, let us love one another, for love is from God, and everyone who loves is born of God and knows God. The one who does not love does not know God, for God is love. By this the love of God was manifested in us, that God has sent his only begotten Son into the world so that we might live through him. In this is love. Not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. Beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. No one has seen God at any time. If we love one another, God abides in us. His love is perfected in us. By this we know that we abide in him and he in us because he has given us of his spirit. We have seen and testified that the Father has sent the Son to be the Savior of the world. Whoever confesses that Jesus is the Son of God, God abides in him, and he in God. We have come to know and have believed the love which God has for us. God is love, and the one who abides in love abides in God, and God abides in him. By this, love is perfected with us, so that we may have confidence in the day of judgment, because as he is, so also are we in this world. There is no fear in love, but perfect love casts out fear because fear involves punishment and the one who fears is not perfected in love. We love because he first loved us. If someone says, I love God and hates his brother, he is a liar. For the one who does not love his brother whom he has seen cannot love God whom he has not seen. And this commandment we have from him that the one who loves God should love his brother also. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this time to look into your word and to consider the topic of love, your love for us, and the love that we're to have for others. I pray that you give us understanding to know it and wisdom and courage to apply it. May you be honored and glorified in our time this morning in Christ's name we pray. Amen. So the term love in this passage appears over 30 times, right? And notice how it's applied in several different ways. Love for one another, love from God, the love of God, that God loves us, that God is love, that we're to abide in love. There is no fear in love, and that we are being perfected in love. So the, the love described here is not, doesn't come from some mystical experience or attached to some emotional sentimentality. Rather, it originates in God, in the salvation that he provides us through his Son, and it's demonstrated in us through good works of sanctification, So earlier in chapter 2, verse 5, John says, whoever keeps his word, in him the love of God has truly been perfected. And this passage that we're going through here actually is the third time John discusses this idea of love in his letter. In chapter 2, verses 7 through 11, he describes love as a proof of fellowship. In chapter 3, verses 10 through 17, he describes it as evidence of a believer's sonship. And then this passage, he cycles back again, covering some of the same themes, but he's also providing greater depth and breadth of his message. So let's take a look at the first couple of verses here, verses 7 and 8. He says, Beloved, let us love one another, for love is from God, and everyone who loves is born of God and knows God. The one who does not love does not know God, for God is love. So the first point in the handout I have here is that love has its origin in God. That's where it begins. Right Before getting very far, though, let's, it's important to clarify this meaning of love. I mean, after all, it's mentioned five times just in these two verses. It's important to understand that. So what do you think the Greek word for love that's used here is anybody, agape, right? It's probably familiar to you. So ag- agape love is goodwill, benevolence, a willful delight in the object of love. It's self-sacrificing. It's a ser- it's self-sacrificing service, and it seeks the benefit of the recipient. It doesn't refer to emotional or romantic or friendship love. There are different Greek words for those. This is agape love is used over and over and over again in this passage. And agape love is not based on feelings. Rather, it's a determined act of the will. It's a joyful resolve to put the welfare of others above our own. And ultimately, agape love doesn't come from us, it comes from God. And, and we see that most clearly where? In the sacrifice of Christ, God's ultimate act of love for us. Now, that doesn't mean that non-believers or un, uh, uh, non-Christians cannot love, right? In fact, sometimes they love better than Christians do. All persons are made in the image of God and have the capacity to love others. We know that, and we recognize that. We're thankful for that. But that kind of love fails to honor the greatest commandment of all. Remember in Matthew 22, Jesus says, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind, and then love others as yourself, right? the two greatest commandments. So unbelievers may love one another, but they're not loving God. And that's the greatest commandment of all. Now, John does tell his readers to love one another. In fact, he says it four times in this passage, so it's really important. And that's some pretty obvious emphasis for us to consider. Now, real love, true love, agape love, has its origin and source in God, and whoever loves in this way gives evidence that they have been born of God, as it says in this verse here. There's a quote here from John Piper. He says, Love is from God the way heat is from fire, or the way light is from sun. Love belongs to God's nature. It's woven into what he is. It's part of what it means to be God. So John's point is that In the new birth, this aspect of the divine nature becomes part of who you are. The new birth is the imparting to you of divine life and an indispensable part of that life is love. It's natural as a believer. And not only are we born of God, we also demonstrate that we know God, as it says here in verse seven at the end. This is not just knowing about God It doesn't have that word in there. This is knowing him. Knowing him intimately and personally as father. So verse 7 we see is this positive affirmation. But in verse 8, it follows with a negative warning. If your life is not characterized by agape love, then you don't know God. John tells us why. Because God is love. And John says this twice. He says it here in verse 8 and also in verse 16. Another repetition for us to be aware of. This phrase, God is love, it it means that it's God's nature to love, to give, to sacrifice. Remember back in chapter 1, verse 5, John says God is light. And it's not God is a light or the light, it is God is light. God is love. He is the nature of light, and he is the nature of love. And, and when we hear this term, God is love, that does not equal love is God. Be very careful. Right? That comes from pantheistic thinking, that everything uh, of love is God. No, love doesn't define God. God defines love. Right? It's really important to get that order, that precedence right. So we look into verse 9 and 10. He says, By this the love of God was manifested in us, that God sent his only begotten Son into the world so that we might live through him. In this is love, not that we love God, but that he loved us and sent his Son to be the propitiation for our sins. So in the handout here, number two, love is seen in the atoning death of Jesus This is the core message of the gospel, is it not? It's the glorious reality of God's love on display. If there were any question about the essence and the proof of God's love, John makes it as plain and clear as can be in these two verses. It's one thing to talk about love. It's another thing even to tell other people you should be loving But it's something else to actually show it. And that's what God did. He's not just a talking God, as we see in his word. We're thankful for that. He's an acting God. And the phrase, the love of God was manifested in us, interesting phrase there. Or some translations say revealed or made manifest among us. This ties back to John being the eyewitness of Jesus. That's the manifestation that he's talking about. He was an eyewitness to the incarnation of Jesus. Look back in chapter 1, verse 1. He makes that very clear in this letter. And he and the other apostles witnessed and confirmed this purpose of this manifesting, this revealing. He says that uh, God sent his one and only son into the world... And he did so for this purpose, so that we might live through him. And doesn't that sound familiar to another verse that John wrote in his gospel? John 3.16. It's, it's the same message that he's sending here. And living through him, it not only means eternal life, and praise God, that's uh, ours as believers. But it also means enjoying fellowship with him. It it means a number of other things. We enjoy fellowship with one another because of his love. Confessing and receiving forgiveness. Walking as he walked. Uh, Walking in the light, as John talks about earlier in this letter. Abiding in the word and his will. Knowing the truth. Being confident in his second coming. Having victory over sin. So many different things. They tie back to the source, uh, which is God's love. And now verse 10 is one of the most glorious, important verses in the Bible, is it not? It, there are a lot of great verses to memorize in this letter, but I, I would put that one right up towards the top if you want to memorize one. Uh, a wonderful verse. It, and it gives God all the credit, does it not? It, where it belongs. Uh, we did nothing to earn our salvation, and he makes that clear. We didn't love God, but he loved us. And to the point of sacrificing his only son in our place. Now, I will make one correction. There is one thing that we contributed. Jonathan Edwards said, you contribute nothing to your salvation except the sin that made it necessary. That's what we bring. And the rest is his. So, in this verse, we see God doing three things. He loved us before we loved him. Even when we were his enemies. He showed his love by sending his son. Romans 5.8, but God demonstrates his own love toward us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. And third, he sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. And that word is very important. It means atoning sacrifice. We, we discussed this a few weeks ago back in chapter 2, verse 2. If you look there, you will see a very similar statement that John makes. Christ's sacrificial death on the cross satisfied the demands of God's justice, appeasing his holy wrath against believer sin. That is propitiation. That wrath that should have been ours was poured out on Jesus. And John makes that very clear. Tim Keller says, The gospel is that Jesus lived the life you should have lived and died the death you should have died in your place, so God can receive you not for your record and sake, but for his record and sake. That pretty much puts everything in its right place, doesn't it? I really like that. Verses 11 and 12, John says, Beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. No one has seen God at any time. If we love one another, God abides in us and his love is perfected in us. So the third point here is that love is perfected in us when we love others. So John makes an obvious connection here between God's love for us and what we are to be doing to others, that we're to be loving them. It's not a disconnected command. Instead, it's connected to a reason, a source. God's love for us is our reason to love others. And sometimes that's easier said than done, isn't it? We're to love others even when they're unlovable. That's agape love. And loving others is what believers do because the love that God has shown them now fills them and they're abiding in Him. Right? Loving others, it's a natural consequence of being in a right relationship with God. In verse 12 here, it seems a little unexpected. No one has seen God at any time. Well, okay, you know that, right? But this is referring to God's divine nature. The real essence of the Godhead, it's invisible to the physical eye. God has been seen physically only through manifestations, theophanies in the Old Testament, and of course, the incarnation of Jesus Christ in the New Testament, right? John one eighteen, John, the apostle, says no one has seen God at any time. The only begotten God who is in the bosom of the Father, he has explained him or revealed him, right? Christ. So why is this verse here? If you look at the rest of the remainder of the verse, it might give you some hint. He says, if we love one another, God abides in us and his love is perfected in us. So God's divine nature is invisible, but people will see God's love if believers love one another. That's the physical manifestation. God will be on display through God's people showing that he abides in them. That's how people see it. And not only does God abide in us, he says his love is perfected in us, the end of verse 12. So that word perfected, we might naturally want to go to the extreme and say, "Is this mean we're perfect individuals?" No. We all know that, don't we? What this indicates is being brought to maturity or accomplishment. Our love for God and others is not technically perfect, not on this side of heaven, uh, but it's matured, and it's demonstrated. John Stott said, mutual Christian love is the evidence that the unseen God, who was once revealed in his son, is now revealed in his people when they love one another. So verses 13 through 16, he continues. By this we know that we abide in him and he in us because he has given us of his spirit. We have seen and testified that the Father has sent the Son to be the Savior of the world. Whoever confesses that Jesus is the Son of God, God abides in him and he in God. We have come to know and have believed the love which God has for us. God is love and the one who abides in love, abides in God, abides in love abides in God and God abides in him. Lots of words. Lots of abiding. So the point here is that Number four, love is evidence that we have the Spirit. It's evidence. Now one of the great things about these verses is a real clear description of the Trinity. You see that? Our participation in fellowship with the triune God. It's right here. And perfect love originates in the triune God. And remember... The first word that describes the fruit of the Spirit in Galatians 5.22, what is it? It's love. And here's another message of assurance that we get from John in verse 13. He gives his readers assurance with this phrase, by this we know. Very helpful. He uses this several times in his, in his letter. And how do we know that the Spirit dwells in our hearts? We see in verse 12, it says, because we love God and one another. And then in verse 14, John reminds us that he was an eyewitness to Jesus and that he was sent from the Father to be the Savior of the world and that whoever confesses this will experience the benefit of abiding in love. Verse 15. And in verse 16, John emphasizes this idea of abiding, using the word three times. Uh, Isaiah covered this a a few weeks ago back in chapter 2, verse 28, where we see this again, where John instructs us to abide in God. He he used this term abide to mean like settle down and dwell. Uh, Or other ways to describe it would be to remain or to stay. And he starts verse 16 with this phrase, we have come to know. He's providing more assurance. There's that word know again. John can say this with confidence because what? He learned it directly from Jesus as an eyewitness. And he says, God is love again, as he did back in verse 8. And then he says, the one who abides in love abides in God and God abides in him. So John's making this connection of abiding in God and in love. They're together. Since God is love, they come packaged together So our demonstration of agape love can only come as a result of the love that comes from God abiding in us. They're not separate. They come together. That idea of God abiding in us, isn't that an amazing thought? In our human physical experience, we can experience abiding. We'd love to abide with our loved ones and our friends, to be with them. But as believers, we have something more. We have the God of the universe abiding in us. He's not just connected to us remotely. Praise God we have his word. He's not even just with us. He's actually in us, abiding in our hearts. Such a wonderful truth. Zane Hodges says, When a believer loves, he is drawing that love from God's Spirit, who is also the source of his confession of Christ. A believer's Spirit-led obedience becomes the evidence that he is enjoying the mutual, abiding relationship with God that John wrote about. In verses 17 and 18, he continues, By this love is perfected with us, so that we may have confidence in the day of judgment. Because as he is, so also are we in this world. There is no fear in love, but perfect love casts out fear because fear involves punishment, and the one who fears is not perfected in love. So the fifth point here is that love gives us confidence as we await the day of judgment. John changes his focus here bringing up these concepts of judgment and fear. And up to this point, John's built his argument that believers are loving others, possessing the Spirit, confessing the Son, abiding in God in his love. But these culminate into a couple ultimate purposes. One, confidence when standing before God on judgment day. And two, Complete absence of fear at that time. And that's possible. How? Because God sees believers as he sees Jesus. That confidence and that absence of fear is the perfect result of God's work in a believer's life. In verse 17, he uses this word perfected again, indicating this idea of completion, brought to maturity. And abiding in the love of God gives us confidence and boldness for Judgment Day. Why? Well, at the end of verse 17, we read, Because as he is, so also are we in this world. Now, I'll admit, when I first read that, I wasn't quite sure what that meant. I really needed a lot of help here. And thankful for our other commentators who are a lot smarter than me to help me understand what he's talking about here. So what this essentially means is that God the Father treats the saints the same way he does his son Jesus. Isn't that a glorious thought? John MacArthur says, God clothes believers with the righteousness of Christ and grants the Son's perfect love and obedience. Someday, believers will stand before God's throne as confidently as their Lord and Savior does. When they reach that final accounting, they will see the fulfillment of 1 John 3, 2, which says, we know that when he appears, we will be like him because we will see him just as he is. It's another great verse to memorize. And in verse 18, true believers here need have no fear of judgment because perfect love casts out fear. There's no fear in love. And John goes on to say that fear involves punishment. Believers who are perfected in love don't face final punishment. Thank the Lord. But anyone who fears God's judgment is not perfected in love, as he says. So this is evidence that something is not right. Something is wrong. John Calvin said, though fear is not wholly shaken off, Yet when we flee to God as to a quiet harbor, safe and free from all danger of shipwreck and of tempests, fear is really expelled for it gives way to faith. Love, perfect love, never fears judgment or punishment. Verses 19 through 21 he uh, wraps this up saying, we love because he first loved us. If someone says, I love God and hates his brother, he is a liar for the one who does not love his brother whom he has seen cannot love God whom he has not seen. And this commandment we have from him that the one who loves God should love his brother also. So the... the. Uh, The next item there in the handout is love is a command because it reflects God's character. It's a command because it reflects God's character. Okay, here, verse 19, another great verse to memorize, right? That's an easy one, too. It's a short one. Great one. And it puts things in the proper place, doesn't it? It's such a simple and straightforward verse But the theological order here is extremely important because it begins with God's love for us. God took the initiative to love us, not us. And as we learned earlier, our love finds its origin in God. And the Father's love is that source and the cause for us to love others. And if I'm not loving others as I ought to, then I don't know God's love as I should. That's the essence of what John's argument here is in verse 20. And remember, back in Matthew 22, Jesus addressed the two greatest commandments, loving God and loving others. And here in verse 20, John adds another perspective to this. it's It's a negative argument along the same lines. He's saying, you can't love God without loving your neighbor. And you're a liar if you claim to do so. You're pretty black and white. Very straightforward. And he says that if one doesn't love his neighbor who is visible, he won't be able to love God who is not visible. If you don't love his creatures, then you can't love the creator. John Stott said, it's obviously easier to love and serve a visible man than an invisible God. And if we fail in the easier task, it is absurd to claim success in the harder task. And God calls us to walk in truth. And that involves both God and others. Now lastly, in verse 21, John basically summarizes this passage that began in verse 7. And he wisely looks to the words of Jesus here to settle the issue. He says, and this commandment we have from him, the commandment to love God and love others. This is not a suggestion or a recommendation. It's a command. And this command, it's a command with two pieces that are inseparable, right? They're the the bookends of the commands what one commentator called the heads and tails of the coin of love. That's not my words, but I thought it was pretty good. And ever since Christ ascended to heaven, God's love is being manifested on earth through us, his people. Guy Wood says, Though it may be difficult to love men as men, we are to love them because they are in the image of God. And to love this image as it is reflected in them, though often obscured by sin and impaired by depravity, and when we are to love them, not only because of our kinship to them, but also because of our relationship to God who is our common father and federal head. It's not easy, but with God's grace and his love, it can be. So, a few key points that to summarize uh, this passage that I'm offering here for you. First, love begins with God. It's manifested through Christ and is being perfected in his people. It all starts with God. May we never forget that. Any love that we have for him And any love that we have for others, it comes from him. And that is our opportunity and responsibility to point others to him. I don't regularly get asked, why are you such a loving person? But if someone does, ask me that. What's my responsibility? Oh, I'm such a loving person. No, I love because he loved me. Secondly, God's love for believers... And believers' love for God and others are inseparable. John makes this very clear. It's not an either or equation here, it's always an and. They're inextricably linked. That love that God has for us, the love that we have for Him, and the love that we have for others is a package deal. And then, third, God's love in His people gives them assurance of His presence. Confidence awaiting judgment and power to reflect his character in the world. So God does not only love us but he gives us assurance and confidence. That's a wonderful truth. And then lastly a couple questions to consider. I'm meddling just a little bit with a couple questions to take home. So one how has your understanding of God and his love for you increased your love for him? It takes some time to meditate on this. The fact that God loved us when we were unlovable. The ultimate agape love demonstrated. That, that should spur us on to love him more. And if you don't think you're doing that, then pray to God to give you that love. Plead to him. Stay in his word. And secondly, when do you have trouble being a loving person? On this side of heaven, we're never going to love others perfectly. Sometimes it's especially difficult. If there are particular situations where that's the case, Take those in prayer to the throne of grace. Repent where needed uh, and plead to the Father to give you his love for others that you cannot generate on your own. Let's pray. Father, we praise you for your love for us. A love that began with you and not with us. Thank you for sending Jesus to be the propitiation for our sins. Making us right with you. Thank you for abiding in us and for your perfect love that gives us confidence in our future. And it casts out all fear. And, and with that knowledge, pray that by your spirit, we would love others the way that you have loved us. Pray you would bless the hour to come as we continue to worship you. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.